With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this special edition of the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the Green Nonprofit Show. You know going green is the right thing to do for the environment and your organization, but budgets are tight and knowing how to get started can be a mystery. This show provides the practical advice on going green you and your colleagues need. While each week the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart Radio Show provides advice on fundraising, board development, and social media, this special edition is all about helping you go green on a nonprofit budget. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, this show draws from experts around the world and his book, The Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, available on Amazon.com and at GreenNonprofits.org. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach The Green Show are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofits. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. Remember, just like our weekly show, this is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show, Ted Hart. And welcome here today to this very special edition of the Nonprofit Coach. This is The Green Show, done in partnership with GreenNonprofits.org. You can find them at GreenNonprofits.org. Here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, radio show, as always, uh, as the announcer mentioned, you can call in and speak to our Page 2 expert. Uh, When we get to Page 2, that number is 347-324-3080. And make sure that you press the number 1 to let us know that you have a question uh, rather than just listening on the switchboard, which you are also welcome to do. You can join us over in the chat room. I see a couple of folks over there. You can ask questions. Uh, you also can email me your questions at tedhart.com. Speaking of tedhart.com, you can join along with the radio links by going to tedhart.com and click on radio. As always, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news, and today is Tuesday, May 22nd. Over in page one news, uh, you will find uh, the following uh, topics. We have uh, several different things that we want to share with you today. One of us, uh, one of them is uh, over in Scripps News today. Uh, just posted with nearly 1.5 million nonprofit organizations across the country, the sector has become an important part of the U.S. economy. It's announced that nonprofits now account for 9% of all wages and salaries, according to the Urban Institute's National Center for Charitable Statistics. They contribute 5.4% of the country's gross domestic product, uh, and they held an eye-popping total of $4.3 trillion in assets. That is trillion with a T, up from $2.4 trillion in 1999, a 39% increase after adjusting for inflation. So the nonprofit sector uh, continues to grow, continues to add jobs, um, and undeterred by the recession, nonprofit employment actually increased an average of 1.9% from 2007 to 2009, according to a recent study out from the Center for Civil Society Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Overall, the nonprofit sector now uh, employs over 10.7 million workers, making it the third largest U.S. workforce after retail trade and manufacturing. This is significant. The IRS, uh, serve, the IRS annual reports show that the number of tax-exempt organizations have increased 42%. The sector is robust. Uh, and growing, even though with the growth in nonprofits, it becomes 
uh, even tighter for each individual charity to succeed in their fundraising, which is why we are here on the Nonprofit Coach. Next up in the radio links today, uh, you'll find for our friends who are interested in supporting the four-legged variety of friends, uh, pets, a number of uh, health-related organizations for animals, nonprofit uh, organizations, clubs, shelters, and rescues across the country do find it difficult to raise money in a down economy. Over in the radio links today, you'll find that Pet Hub, available at pethub.com, has unveiled a new program designed to help raise money for charitable organizations, making it possible for any nonprofit working to improve the lives of pets to create a customized digital ID pet tag. So uh, check that out over in the radio links today so that uh, you'll be able to uh, help uh, nonprofit organizations uh, who are looking to uh, raise money for charities. Um, so check that out over in the radio links. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, now I'll just give you a little bit of a program uh, note just to remind everybody uh, that next week uh, is a good week to catch up with your podcast here on the Nonprofit Coach, which you can always find uh, for free at tedhart.com because it is the Memorial Day holiday um, week here in the United States. There will not be a live show here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, next uh, Tuesday, uh, but we do have, I believe, a special announcement today uh, regarding uh, the show on June 5th. Uh, so I do want to uh, invite uh, Michael Baker back here uh, to the Nonprofit Coach. Michael, over in the radio links today, uh, folks will find a direct link to the Techno Conference. You were kind enough to come on to our last show and to uh, share with us the uh, very robust registration for this new conference taking place in Orlando. Uh, But you're uh, coming on the show again today with a a big announcement directly uh, attached to the Nonprofit Coach. So welcome back, Michael Baker. Ted, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, we, we, I do think we should actually have a segment devoted just to me. Um, <laughs> well, you, you seem to uh, have so many different interests in the nonprofit sector. That's probably not a bad, a bad idea. Now, you've, uh, you've asked us to work on something, and, and it seems that uh, everybody's come up with a, a really exciting addition to techno and uh, a special edition of the Nonprofit Coach radio show. So what's this going to yeah. look like, and what's happening on June 5th in Orlando? Well, we're real excited with uh, the Techno Conference, as you know, and we've talked about this in, on the previous shows. Um, we're going to have a great group of folks um, with offering a tremendous opportunity for education, and we're real excited to announce and thank you very much um, for being willing to do this. On, on Tuesday, June 5th, um, from noon to 1 p.m., we will do a live uh, Ted Hart radio show uh, from the AFP Techno Hub, and we are so excited about that. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. This is uh, this is always wonderful. Uh, the last time uh, we had a, a live edition of the Nonprofit Coach from the floor of a conference was the uh, Blackboard Conference, uh, their big annual conference. Uh, we were live, and that was really quite uh, a, a fun uh, event. So we're looking forward to uh, uh, being live. So you're hearing it first uh, here right from uh, uh, Michael Baker that uh, there is a show uh, on June 5th, uh, 12 noon, our regular time uh, here for the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, we will be live from the Techno Conference uh, for the Nonprofit Coach. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, before I let you go, um, how, uh, how are things looking for uh, uh, Techno, besides the fact that we're going to be there with uh, the live radio show? Uh, you folks are looking pretty strong down there. We are. We are. We are, we are just uh, having a real strong response to registration um, we're over 400 people attending, which is fantastic for a first-time conference. And we are so excited uh, to have folks like yourself and Laura Howe from the Red Cross and Alice Ferris and Carlos Dominguez um, talking amongst other folks uh, throughout the, the couple of days and then capping it off with uh, you know the nonprofit coach, the radio show that you're going to do on June 5th from live noon to 1 o'clock and, and finishing it with Steve Wozniak, uh, the co-founder of Apple. So um, we're looking forward to it. And if folks still, we still are, are if they'd like to register, um, let us know. Go to um, afptechno.org and uh, follow the instructions. Um, although the advanced registration is uh, closed, they can register on site and uh, let us know ahead of time they're going to do so. So we're That's looking great. forward yeah, to it. I noticed uh, that you've got uh, Penelope Burke 
who's uh, going to be at Techno. She is uh, going to be live here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach, um, uh, the last show before uh, we go on our summer hiatus. So she will be uh, live here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, June 26th, but people can uh, hear her uh, live at the Techno Conference. And that's taking place June 4th and 5th at the Gaylord Palms uh, in Orlando, Florida. Any other uh, uh, quick updates before I let you go? Just say uh, thank you to those who are attending. Thanks to the folks, the volunteers, and the staff that helped put the AFP Techno Conference together. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and uh, celebrating its success down in Orlando in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And looking forward to, uh, to doing the show live uh, from the Techno Conference uh, down in Orlando. Michael Baker, uh, thank you for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. Back up here on uh, page one news, uh, following along at tedhart.com over in the radio links, uh, you will find that we've posted for you today, because uh, get, I get this question quite a bit about board of directors self-evaluation and what uh, policies a uh, board of directors might put in place. Uh, we've posted for you today several samples of board member self-evaluation uh, policies. You can find those over in the radio links uh, today. While you're over there in the radio links, uh, you'll also uh, find an update to our LinkedIn group, the people-to-people fundraising, P2P fundraising uh, group that we have hosted for quite some time over as a partnership with LinkedIn.com continues to grow. Uh, We just uh, had another eight requests to join uh, the group uh, this morning, and that brings a total of 1,761 of our colleagues are all over in the LinkedIn group for people-to-people fundraising. Of course, it's free of charge. You can follow along in the radio links and add your name uh, and participate in the discussion, learn from your colleagues, and post your best content over on LinkedIn. So check that out in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Um, we also uh, wanted to uh, give a, a shout-out to uh, a number of uh, very um, influential people in the nonprofit sector. Uh, we are announcing today um, in the radio links the top 10 all-time shows uh, for the nonprofit coach. Um, we uh, have uh, with us today one of our top 10 all-stars, um, and uh, so I'm pleased to bring in to the show here Clint O'Brien. Clint O'Brien is, uh, uh, was my guest on the Nonprofit Coach uh, radio show on February 8, 2011. Clint, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. You are the number six all-time top show on the Nonprofit Coach radio show, and on that day uh, you were sharing with us important news about B corporations. Welcome here back to the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you. Can you hear me, Ted? I can. I can hear you. And uh, this is the first announcement. People can go and see all the top ten. And uh, over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to have find folks like yourself who are in that all-star list uh, joining us to uh, give uh, just a, a quick tip. So we're calling this the top ten all-star tips. And uh, so you're back with us today. So uh, Clint O'Brien, number six all-time in the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show podcast and live listens. Uh, what's your uh, tip for us today? So you probably have lots of fundraisers, nonprofit fundraisers among your listenership. And so I thought I would come up with something that might be of interest to them. And so I talked to some of the people who I'm privileged to work with here at CARE2 who are themselves uh, former nonprofit fundraisers. Um, I talked to Dane Grams, who was Head of Development for GLSEN, the LGBT organization, and before that for many years was a fundraiser with the Human Rights Campaign. And I also talked to uh, Ryan Miller, who was a professional fundraiser at HJC New Media in Toronto for lots of different clients. And I um, told- and let me just stop you right there. Just a shout out to Ryan Miller. She uh, was one of our stars up at uh, the Toronto Digital Leap Conference uh, this year. Care Two was one of the sponsors. We want to thank you for that. And Ryan did. A fantastic job as always. Well, a star she is, no doubt. And um, and I'm you know very happy to be on the same team with her and with Dane Grams um, at Care Two, where you know a lot of what we do is about helping nonprofit fundraisers um, find more donors and get those donate donors to donate more, etc. So uh, so my tip is about acquisition. Um, and I think lots of your listeners probably think of acquisition as a campaign to grow their list 
you know, from time to time when budget when budget allows. And uh, first of all, I want to say I hope people would think more programmatically about acquisition. And one of the best reasons to think about it that way is that uh, everybody's list, no matter how high quality it is, list of donors and, and potential donors, um, has a churn rate. And that churn rate is measured not only by the rate at which people will unsubscribe over the course of a year, but also the rate at which they'll turn non-responsive. So imagine if you have a list of 10,000 supporters, some are donors, some are potential donors, and if 10% unsubscribe every year and another 20% turn non-responsive, you've got a churn rate of 30%. So if you want to grow by, let's say, 5,000 people, um, you'd have to acquire 8,000 because you're going to lose 3,000 to your churn anyway. So your net growth would be 5,000. So uh, my tip today, though, is about timing of acquisition. Because a lot of people wonder, and I hear this sometimes from Care2's many clients. You know, we're privileged to work with more than 1,000 clients who use Care2 as an acquisition source because we have 19 million members uh, in our online community at care2.com. So it's a great uh, group of people. They tend to be older demographically and have income, and they're all united by a desire to do good, you know, to make a difference. So we get, we get a lot of times to get this question, what's the best time of year to do acquisition? And my answer, based on talking to my colleagues and, and clients over the years, is um, the summertime is actually an ideal time to do acquisition to grow your list. And the reason is that, um, as everyone knows, but every one of your listeners knows that the best time of year to engage in fundraising is year-end, uh, particularly November and December. But the thing is, you don't want the people on your list to be getting their first fundraising appeals uh, in November and December. You probably want them to have been on your list for a while and received other fundraising appeals and other forms of interactive communication to really cultivate a relationship. And that shouldn't be, you know, happening just at the end of the year, even though it is a prime fundraising time of the year. So my, my suggestion, my tip for the day is grow your list this summer um, in order to have people on your list long enough and have enough two-way, highly interactive, immersive communication from you before end-of-year fundraising so that you can really maximize the, your year-end campaigns so that you're not just getting first-time donors, but in some cases you're getting second- and third-time donors who are going to be increasing their donation at year-end um, rather than starting out with their very first-ever donation. Well, that's uh, great, uh, great advice. Is that true for both online and offline acquisition? Yes, I think the principle is the same. However, as you know very well, Ted, from your great experience, um, the costs involved with uh, uh, mail, direct mail acquisition in particular um, are, you know, somewhat formidable. And so um, the great thing about online acquisition, particularly the way we do it at Care2 and some other options out there, is that um, the cost is, you know, there's certainly very little in the way of fixed cost, and it's only a cost per lead, as it were, cost per uh, donor lead that you're paying. You're not paying, you know, lots of ramp-up startup costs for a program or lots of fixed costs like with a print, a print run. Um, so in a sense, you can afford to start online acquisition earlier and do it in a more gradual way, uh, but your direct mail acquisition, um, you know, you might want to time that to be more of a concentrated burst that happens, let's say, in the summer and you've had a lot of time in advance to get the necessary budget in, in place. But no, the principle is really the same. You know, acquisition, acquisition is acquisition and you know, one thing to plug care too is the way we do it, we're about multi-channel leads acquired online, but our leads, the lead records, include the postal address. So we very much want our clients to put these fresh care to leads into their mail program uh, so that they can use every channel available, and frankly, for that matter, including telemarketing, um, in order to maximize the chances of converting these donor leads into actual donors. As we always talk here on the Nonprofit Coach, your success will come through the integration of both online and offline. And thank you today, Clint O'Brien from Care2. How can uh, my listeners uh, find you? Well, you know, the best way is to find our website that's just for nonprofit professionals like your listeners. It's at care2team.com, so C-A-R-E number two team, T-E-A-M.com. And they can also check out our blog, uh, Frogloop, frogloop.com, uh, which you know well because you've been a guest on Frogloop before. I was a, a guest and uh, always uh, get comments uh, from people regarding the video that you posted on, uh, on Frogloop. That, that was a lot of fun. So everybody, check out uh, Clint O'Brien, the number six uh, all-time top ten 
for podcasts and live listens here on the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Clint O'Brien, thank you for joining us again today here on the Nonprofit Coach. My pleasure. Thank you. And that uh, brings us to the end of uh, page one, which means it is now time for page two. My pleasure here on the special edition of the Nonprofit Coach, The Green Show, to welcome Amy Frankel. She's the Director and Regional Representative of the United Nations Environment Program, Regional Office for North America. Amy Frankel has worked for more than 25 years on environmental law and policy in the United States, intergovernmental organizations, and the private sector. Ms. Frankel joins us today from the United Nations Environment Program as Regional Director for North America, where she has served since January of 2008. Prior to UNEP, Amy worked as Senior Counsel for the United States Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation on the Oceans, Atmosphere, Fisheries, and Coast Guard Subcommittee. She also served as a Senior Policy Advisor in the Office of International Affairs within the U.S. EPA. Prior to her public service, uh, Ms. Frankel worked in private practice in both New York and San Francisco. She holds a B.A. in political science with a concentration in environmental studies from Grinnell College and a law degree from Harvard University. She also speaks French and has a certificate from the Catholic Institute of Paris. Welcome here live on the Nonprofit Coach, Amy Frankel. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. Amy, it's wonderful to have you here, and of course, once a month we set aside uh, this time in partnership with GreenNonprofits.org because here at the Nonprofit Coach, uh, we care about all aspects of nonprofits, including uh, the very important topic of doing what is right for the environment. So why don't we start right there? There's a lot of uh, things that I do want to discuss with you today, but um, help us understand what is uh, the United Nations Environment Program. Uh, the United Nations Environment Program uh, was actually created in 1972, uh, around the same time that the uh, environmental movement was really taking off in the U.S. And, and elsewhere around the world. And it came about because countries saw a need to actually sit down and talk together about issues that they couldn't solve on their own. Uh, at the time that the issue uh, of the day was acid rain, where the pollution from one country would actually impact uh, the lakes and the uh, trees of another, and so they really needed to sit down and agree on uh, steps to uh, work together. So since 72, we've been uh, active on, on many different issues, and uh, we're unique in the UN because our headquarters is actually in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, so it's the only UN headquarters that is in, a, in the developing world. And, and so that it's been around for quite some time, and the topics have changed uh, over time for, uh, for uh, those that you interact with. Um, do you mainly interact with governments, uh, charities, non-governmental organizations? We actually, uh, if anything, we've really increased our partnership, and, and we're a pretty small organization, and so we, we couldn't do our work without these partners. Uh, so we work... Absolutely, governments um, are our uh, governing body. They direct our work program and our budgets um, and often work with us to implement our, our activities. But we also partner with, uh, with the nonprofit groups, with the private sector quite heavily, uh, with um, lots of different scientific organizations and experts, as well as other international uh, entities such as the World Bank and, and other parts of the UN. Do you become sort of a clearinghouse for information for all sorts of groups engaged in environmental activities? Right. One of the core mandates of UNEP is to keep sort of the science of the environment, the changing environment, under review and to provide information that's useful for governments and for others, uh, other stakeholders and citizens uh, about what's happening so that uh, it can be the foundation for action as, as needed. So there's quite a history of our uh, just trying to bring complicated science and technical information 
uh, to people in a way that, that is understandable and uh, that will help them in making their decisions for what might be needed. Here on The Nonprofit Coach, we come to you live uh, from uh, the national headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America here in Washington, D.C., and uh, coming up in Washington, D.C., uh, right around the corner uh, is an important activity that I believe you're involved with, and that's World Environment Day. Uh, when does that take place, and what role does uh, uh, United Nations Environment Program play? Yes, the uh, World Environment Day is, you could call it sort of the International Earth Day. It's celebrated by over, I mean, hundreds of countries around the world, um, and that's officially June 5th. Uh, so not just uh, in North America, but uh, all around the world, there'll be uh, different activities and uh, engagement to celebrate World Environment Day. And here in the city, uh, well, in North America, what we do is pick a city in the U.S. or Canada, which is the scope of our office's uh, uh, work, uh, and work with that city to host a series of events. And we're very happy that this year we'll be doing this in our own uh, uh, host city of Washington, D.C. Uh, so we've got a couple of things planned. Uh, there's, first of all, uh, uh, over the weekend, a major effort that's really led by the city at the Woodrow Wilson High School, uh, June 3rd and 4th, uh, to you know interact with students and the general public, and there'll be lots of booths and activities and, and just the, the community in Washington coming together for that. Uh, but then we've got uh, a press release of a major report on June 6th at the Press Club, and we're also launching on June 5th on World Environment Day itself uh, findings uh, that we did through a, uh, a series of events with the Green, Green Building Council and the World Business Council on Sustainable Development around cities and resource-efficient cities and, uh, in particular, green buildings and what, in fact, uh, might be needed to move forward on, on the benefits of those uh, efforts. Now, how significant is it for a city like Washington, D.C. to be named the North American host city? Well, it's, uh, you know, we pick cities where there's already a commitment and efforts underway uh, to support efforts to be more sustainable, and Washington is certainly no exception. Uh, Washington, as your listeners might know, has over the years really implemented some pretty innovative uh, solutions. For example, this five-cent tax on plastic bags at the grocery store, which has phenomenally changed consumer behavior. I don't know the statistics of how many bags have been avoided, if you will, but um, just you know, initiatives like that, bike lanes, uh, I think there's more lead certified buildings in Washington, D.C. than anywhere else in the U.S. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting things that are being done. And so, you know, it's both, it's really the host city's opportunity to showcase what they're doing and to bring truly the local effort connected with the global um, through working in partnership with, with our organization, the U.N. Environment Program. And as you know, here on the, the Nonprofit Coach, our focus is on helping nonprofits succeed. And here on The Green Show, uh, specifically to do what is right for the environment and to become more green, um, Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area are host to uh, a lot of charitable organizations, a lot of national organizations. What's your experience been in terms of nonprofits' uh, interest and preparedness in becoming more green? Well, in terms of... Uh you know, on World Environment Day, we've got, um, I think, hundreds of activities planned by not us, but by lots of different groups. So, in other words, it's an um, opportunity for the different organizations and city groups and schools and so forth uh, to showcase what they're doing. Um, but, you know, I think your point is also that it's important to uh, to not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And I'm happy to say that our organization is no different. And so both here in Washington as well as in our headquarters in Nairobi, uh, we've made strides so that our own environmental footprint is uh, is less. Uh, so, for example, our office here is a LEED certified. We're gold certified. All of our travel is offset in terms of the carbon emissions 
and our Nairobi uh, headquarters is, is just a fantastic modern building with the goal of zero uh, net uh, energy use uh, over a, a short investment period. That's certainly uh, quite a commitment. Can you give some specifics for um, our listeners today in terms of very practical advice for those that maybe don't have the kind of budget that it might take to become LEED certified? Um, are there things that they still can do? Are there opportunities uh, for smaller organizations to still do what's right? Absolutely, and there's some very good reasons to do it which have to do with saving money as well. Uh, so, in fact... Uh, well, I think, I think you've got everybody's attention now. Everybody's listening. Yeah. How do we save money? Well, what's interesting is I remember there was, a, I think, a poll done of what motivates people uh, to do better on uh, environment. And I think there was a, a poll which went sort of door-to-door in, in some neighborhoods and said, okay, you know, turn down your... Uh, thermostat and change your light bulbs to, you know, help on climate change. And then the second was, you know, do the same thing uh, to save the polar bear. And the third message that by far was the, the winning message that motivated people to change how they, uh, what their behavior was and their consumption behavior was they said, here's your neighbor's electric bill and here is yours. And it showed that if you put in, let's say, some of these new light bulbs that save energy, turn down your thermostat a drop or two, uh, put it in good insulation, it's going to save you hard, cold cash. And that's what you know will, in the end, uh, be a good motivator. So there's so many stories about this. Um, major businesses are finding ways, uh, if you get your employees to turn off their computers at the end of the day, uh, make sure the lights are off, uh, small things that actually add up and you know, you can save literally, there's a, a federal agency I know that has done this requiring all of their computers to be shut down after the backup system goes forward. And apparently they've saved over a million dollars a year. So we're not talking small small dollars. There, there's a lot of um, really sound financial reasons to do better for the environment. Well, that, and that's very practical uh, advice, too. That doesn't sound like it. it's... Uh it requires first a, a lot of technical knowledge uh, or a big budget to execute. Now, some of these things are uh, are pretty straightforward. I mean, of course, you know, if you're uh, planning a new corporate building, it's going to be a, a more of an investment. But what we've found that if you invest a dollar in a resource-efficient building, you're going to get paid back double that within a five-year investment period. So even where you... Now, what does it mean uh, to to make the building energy efficient? So what you're saying is you really can't succeed in having that investment pay off, but what are we talking about in terms of investment? Um, Well, there's a a pretty well-known system uh, that was created in the U.S. um, called the LEAD uh, system, uh, which is leadership in... uh, I'm going to probably get this wrong, energy and environmental design, um, which gives you some very specific actions that can be taken. Um, so I won't go into all the detail, but it does have to do with things like, you know, the materials that are used to uh, build the building, the design of it in a way that lessens the need for uh, energy use, the kind of, again, insulation that's used, the source of the uh, construction materials are they locally sourced or do they have to be transported from far away, which has implications for emissions of. of uh, and, and that's a big that's a big consideration, isn't it, to really uh, understand and know the sourcing of the, uh, the the materials that you're using. Yeah, as I said, that's one one of the components. The nice thing about the that lead system is it's not just a one way of doing things. They give you kind of a menu of options of. Uh, actions that can be taken, so it's not uh, a one-size-fits-all approach. But these kinds of uh, ideas and the the core concept that having a better stewardship of the environment and using our resources more efficiently is not uh, a luxury and it's not instead of a good economy, it's actually needed for a solid economy and for economic growth. And these are the issues that are front and center at the major conference that's being set for Rio de Janeiro uh, just next month. 
And tell me, uh, th- that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is uh, what's coming up in Rio. And th- this is a, a very big deal in, uh, um, in the environmental sector. What is Rio Plus 20? Is that what it's called? Yes, uh, Rio Plus 20, it's a short name for uh, what's formerly known as the United Nations Conference on Sustainable Development. And this is a conference, um, it will be taking place in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Uh, The high-level segment is uh, June 20th through 22nd, but there will also be some uh, preparatory meetings and some other events leading up to that high-level discussion. It's called Rio Plus 20 because, as you might recall, uh, 20 years ago, there was a major meeting in Rio uh, known as the Earth Summit, which for the first time really put on the table this idea of how can we develop, how can especially countries which have significant poverty and challenges um, on the human and social scales, develop in a way that at the same time considers the environmental impacts in a much smarter way. And so this conference is really an anniversary of that event, but it's also coming at a time where you know, we're at a different place in the world. And one of the key challenges will be, you know, looking at what's changed since 20 years ago, um, what's changed in terms of the environment that we live in, what's changed in terms of economy, population growth, and, and other key factors, and what do we need to do to keep on the right path. And what what are you expecting? I mean, obviously, this is this is a huge, big deal. Um, in in Rio, taking place in uh, in South America, um, where where all of this is going to be evaluated and um, publicity is going to be drawn to the progress that's been made. Are there any uh, preliminary findings that you're expecting people to really stand up and take notice that maybe uh, were not expected? Well, the, there's a, a couple of different. Um, expected types of results, um, there are really two. The first is there will be a political document that's negotiated by the leaders, and in fact, uh, we're expecting so far, I think, 130 heads of state and other high-level officials have confirmed. So it's a, again, it's a top-level conference, and the governments of the world will come together uh, to, again, recommit to these issues and to the challenges. And uh, there's a text that's, in fact, now being negotiated um, in the lead-up to Rio. And we, we can talk about that a bit more, but to really touch on uh, some of the key issues of uh, sustainable development and what we call um, the green economy or, or green economy uh, tools. Um, There's another uh, type of outcome that we're expecting is related to voluntary commitment. So this is not governmental necessarily, although it could be. And I'm especially excited about this because we're seeing a lot of very concrete proposals coming uh, or being shaped that will be launched and and announced uh, at Rio by governments, by different UN entities, by uh, members of private sector are very active in this and by nonprofit groups um, that can really move us forward uh, on this better path. So the, the good news is it, it means it's a very inclusive meeting. Um, there's an opportunity for everyone uh, to try to make a difference, uh, not just at Rio, but, but beyond. And in for Rio, um, the, the, is, this is not just governments. This is um, a lot of different uh, NGOs and others coming together, or is this primarily uh, geared towards, as you said, a lot of world governments are coming together? Well, no, it's quite uh, m- quite a bit more than governments. In fact, uh, the Brazilian host country is estimating uh, 50,000 people uh, will be attending different uh, events and, and meetings in Rio. So well, that, that's no small undertaking to have 50,000 people coming together on such an important topic. Yeah, no, it's going to be um, it's going to be uh, uh, quite a few balls uh, that the Brazilians are, are juggling in terms of the logistics, uh, and uh, of course they're also going to be hosting the World Cup and uh, the Olympics uh, over the next couple of years. So 
Um, is this sort of uh, on the world stage uh, a a pretest, if you will, in terms of how you handle that many people in Rio? Well, I, I'm sure that there'll be some uh, very helpful lessons learned uh, from it. Um, in fact, I think the other events will likely draw even more people. So, um, but we're very uh, pleased to uh, be uh, hosted by the Brazilian government and uh, in Rio and. Um, there'll be, as I said, many different things happening, but the real focus will be given where we are in the environment, and we, we haven't even talked about sort of the state of the world right now, but you know, we are really at a crossroads, and we've got the fiscal crisis around the world, we've got budgets that are tight, um, and yet we're in a place where we are seeing alarming signals about the state of our environment. I mean, climate change is just one issue where global greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere are now already exceeding safe levels, but emissions are continuing to increase and not decline. Um, another example is fish stocks. Um, 80% of our commercial fish stocks are exploited. Biodiversity around the world is declining almost everywhere in the world. And in fact, uh, since 1970, uh, around when we were created, we've lost 30%, approximately 30%, of biodiversity uh, globally. So we're, we're in tough shape. Uh, water is another key issue. Water is a core resource, of course, but water supply is estimated to meet only 60% of the demand around the world in 20 years. So we've got the situation with the fiscal problems. We've got an environment where uh, we need to stand up and pay attention to this evidence uh, and the reason is if you look at those issues together. The fact is that our economic growth in this post-industrial age has come at the expense of environment. We've always put environment kind of at the end and said, we'll get to it after we develop, and that model has just got to change. Um, we've done a lot of work at UNEP to show that, in fact, if you change your pattern of economic development in a way that looks not only at the environmental implications up front, but you also look at um, implications for populations and for you know, living conditions, you can not only have a higher GDP over time, but you do it in a way that restores and maintains a, a healthier environment. Amy Frankel is uh, with us live here on the Nonprofit Coast. She's the Director and Regional Representative of the United Nations Environment Program Regional Office for North America. Amy, we're going to take just a very quick break. When we come back, I'm wondering if you can help give some advice for the charitable organizations today who um, obviously work with boards of directors and want to do the right thing for the environment. But uh, in the political environment that we have, particularly in the United States, where significant sectors of the uh, the political spectrum uh, not only uh, don't want to discuss the issues that uh, that, that you are, are bringing up today um, in such dire terms, uh, but actually deny that any of it's actually happening. Let's talk about that when we come back here live on The Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And uh, we're back here uh, with uh, Amy Frankel. Amy, what, uh, uh, what ammunition can you give to folks who may have uh, uh, on their boards of directors or in their communities people of uh, a variety of different political stripes some of which uh, just completely deny, not even a, a matter of, uh, of degrees or discussion, but just deny it? Well, I think it's unfortunate that the discourse has gotten to where it is. And frankly, given the scientific evidence, it's irresponsible to not uh, have a, a, a real honest discussion about these issues. Um, and the fact is, many parts of uh, society, including within governments um, in, in North America, businesses, city planners are just rolling up their sleeves and saying, look, we've got to get going here. Um, we don't have time to debate these issues. We realize the evidence is pointing in a way that means we've got to do things differently. 
Um, cities are a great example. I mean, city managers um, tend to be very practical people because they have to handle the demand of their populations for services, for waste, for safe water, um, and transportation, and so on. Uh, and in fact, many cities across the U.S. and Canada are planning on climate change. They're saying, well, look, we see the evidence. What does that mean for us? If they're on coasts, what do they need to do to actually make sure that their citizens are safe and that the infrastructure is safe and, and that the costs of that are, are uh, you know, the investments are, are protected? So uh, the military, actually, there was a, I know in the U.S., um, some top flag officers, I think 11 formal admirals uh, and generals, came together in a report several years ago urging action on climate change because they're also very practical. The military, um, you know, it's not political. They're looking at uh, their assets in the water and looking at what's going to happen when uh, sea level starts to rise and there's different changes to our environment. So I would urge that people um, set aside um, the debate and look at the evidence and let's think about what can be done uh, in a very practical way. And as we started the discussion, the key here is to stop thinking that the environment is a cost. The environment is the source of our economy. I mean, it's all we have. This is the only planet we've got. And so if we look at the signs of how we're using our resources and some of the scarcities that are coming about, uh, some of the, for example, rare metals that we need for our cell phones uh, and the water I mentioned, the availability of fresh water, which is critical to life on Earth, um, we've got to do better if we're going to support an economy that goes uh, you know, into the future and, and supports our children and, and our grandchildren. Well, how can – I understand what you're saying, and I'm just struggling with, uh, with the question here in terms of um, you know, it is irresponsible, and obviously, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in your camp, and I'll, I'll just uh, disclose that. Obviously, I care very much about the environment, which is why once a month we have the special green show for nonprofits. But I'm always looking for that, that practical advice, those things that will help the average uh, charity. And when they're working with boards of directors and folks who, uh, you know, are just in denial, and there seems to to uh, to be this this requirement that you not even acknowledge that there could be any issues. How how do you combat that when when the the discussion itself um, is negated um, in that it's it's all bunk that what you're saying is just not true that you know these are natural cycles um, that the Earth goes through and that um, you know what what scientists point to are just you know very narrow segments of time. Um, what are some of the ar other arguments, and, and how do you combat that with people that are so ardent uh, in the opposition? Well, two two points. I mean, the first is I think um, the, there's a lot of companies uh, and others that are uh, pretty thoughtful about how they're approaching these issues and are looking at uh, their operations. Uh, and Walmart's actually an interesting example. Uh, in terms of the supply chain that they where they get their products from that they sell, um, they've got some pretty interesting uh, requirements for their supply to reduce uh, environmental impacts. And you know, I, I really do think if you bring the evidence to board members or any kind of decision maker in any way, if it's a household, you know, you're the head of a household, you're looking at your bills, or you're a big company or a government that has to run a, a government and operations, there's a lot of evidence that uh, shows that you know these steps not only are good for the environment, but um, actually in the long run uh, will save money. Um, part of the challenge of that is we've really skewed the market in a way that doesn't fully reflect the environmental cost. So for example, there's a lot of subsidies that are out there, including for fossil fuels, that will skew it so that the price for fossil fuels compared to some of the renewable energy sources, um, it's not a fair comparison because it's not on an even playing field. Uh, so that's one thing that has to be addressed. Um, and 
you know, there, there, an, another issue is that some, some of the services or the benefits of the environment are not even counted in the market. And for example, if you take, um, let's say you take a, a coastal area and you've got uh, things like, let's say down in Florida, you've got mangroves and the healthy ecosystem has mangroves. Well, there's no market in what the mangrove provides. I mean, there's fisheries, of course, there's tourism, which is great, but um, there's additional benefits. For example, when you have a healthy mangrove uh, system, it actually prevents damage from storms. And if you take down those mangroves, you're going to have more storm damage and then have to you know, put up a seawall or, or whatever you need to do to, to protect your, your, your town. So starting to think about that in a, in a more intelligent way uh, is very important and is something that UNEP's been, again, working uh, quite uh, effectively on with countries around the world. Now this, again, the, the challenge at Rio, as you pointed out, and, and obviously not just at Rio, but beyond, both you know, domestically here, but around the world, is how do you convince uh, leaders to have the courage uh, to take decisions that could be unpopular in the short term, um, but in the long run will actually be better for the economy and the environment. So that's a challenge. It, it's, it's a hard time for decisions like this to be made when we've got uh, fiscal challenges, but uh, we're hoping that um, the leaders of the world um, and the NGO community and the businesses that will come together in Rio um, will be able to have the courage and, and the wisdom uh, to make those hard decisions. Amy, what's the uh, the percentage of chance that uh, what scientists are seeing today um, is not going to come to pass? In other words, are we at really, from the scientific um, analysis, pretty close to 100% certain that the path that we're on is not a good path, or is there a reasonable doubt? Uh, well, I mean, it's a pretty broad question because there's a lot of different uh, uh, areas of, of science. So I don't know if you're only referring to climate change or other examples, but let's just take the fisheries for a minute. I, I guess it comes. I guess it comes from my frustration of you know you mentioned the military, you mentioned so so many businesses that are taking you know productive steps that there are there's so many people that are trying to do the right thing, and yet there seems to still be energy on the opposition. And I'm just wondering how is that justified? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can't really speak to, you know, what's uh, behind, you know, different people's views, but I think what we can look to is, is the scientific evidence. And I, I do think fisheries is a very helpful example because it's very specific, uh, and people understand that if you catch all the fish, there'll be none left for tomorrow. And so uh, it's a very clear uh, issue for us uh, around the world um, the fact is that fish are, I think they are the protein for over a billion people. So that's like a seventh of the whole world's population at least, if not more. And so, uh, in other words, that's the primary food source for people. And yet, we've exploited globally 80% of our commercial fish stocks. 52%. Now, what's, now, what does that mean? I mean, new fish are made every day. So, what what does it uh, what does it mean to uh, to have eighty percent of the fish stock exploited? Um, and there's a little bit more nuance to it, which is that of that, that means that um, we don't have much room to grow. I mean, the fish are trying to keep up with demand um, in terms of you know uh, replenishment, but good fishing policies are what's needed to make sure that the natural fisheries have a, you know have the ability to replenish and at the moment 20% of our fisheries around the world are overexploited um and 8% are depleted um so um we don't have a lot of room to grow we need to do things differently uh, that's a very clear example if you cut all the forests down you know, there's some things which are, they're not as tipping points where you can't really restore it in the same way. Um, ecosystems are complex, and so we have to consider before we uh, change them so significantly, um, what are the implications of that? What are we losing? 
not only in the short term but in the long term. And those are hard messages for people, uh, some people to really grapple with, especially when, understandably, people are focused on jobs and the economy and really the short term. Well, is, is that the counterweight? Is it just... I'm going to choose to take a blind eye because I make more money if I do, um, or or is is there reason to 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 think that someone could legitimately feel that uh, they are justified in not not engaging in the debate? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I completely. I, I just, it just bothers me when it, it it seems in some sectors. The, the discussion itself can't even take place. It's just so it's denied as as even something worthy of discussion. Yeah, I mean, again, there's always sort of what are known as early adopters of of um, innovative ideas, and uh, you know the fact that all the great change of the world has been taken by people and companies and leaders that have been willing to take a risk and sort of to step out there and have the courage. Uh, to speak what they see as as the truth and the evidence uh, before them, uh, which means not following business as usual as, as the path for the future. And so, there are those who might, you know, be hard to convince. But I have optimism that, with all of the people focusing on this in every different sector, again, private sector, public sector, internationally, domestically, at the city level in lots of nonprofit groups and schools and teachers. And there's a lot of people aware of this who actually do get it and do see that there's a better way of us uh, interacting with the environment, uh, that we can have a very high standard of living, uh, in fact, a higher GDP, as we've shown, if we do things differently. Um, so you're feeling other- that even through the denial, there's reason to be somewhat hopeful that uh, leaders will emerge and make the right decisions? I think that the vast majority of people um, will, when given evidence, um, will look at it and make, make you know, decisions based on real evidence. And um, so I, I, I tend to be optimistic about the ability of, of people to uh, really see uh, see for themselves and, and, and make decisions that are sound. Um, so, you know, and again, I, we see it happening already. And it was interesting, just driving around the Washington area, there are so many new, like, companies that are uh, installing, you know, energy-efficient windows and solar panels, the price of which have fallen dramatically. That saves people money. Um so there's a lot of jobs being created uh, through this work. A lot of people are getting it and uh, getting on board, and um, that, that's my sense of optimism, not only for the meeting in Rio, but just you know what we're doing now and what will happen beyond. I mean, Rio, Rio is a moment in time where we can showcase these issues and try to build uh, political support and, again, concrete commitments that we'll see launched uh, that will take us you know, towards uh, the, the next couple of decades of, of the good work on these issues. Amy, you've been uh, very informative today and, and uh, uh, quite soothing in uh, your optivi- optimism. Uh, we, of course, through the Green Show, call on all nonprofits to do what they can, and the practical advice that you've provided today I think will be very helpful. Amy Frankel uh, is uh, the Director and Regional Representative of the United Nations Environment Program regional office for North America as we uh, wrap up in the final moment of the show here. Amy, how can folks reach you? Uh, Well, our website is uh, www.unep.org, and our regional office, uh, you just add a backslash, R-O-N-A, Regional Office for North America. Perfect, and we've provided a direct link to your website today, uh, here in the radio links available at tedhart.com. Uh, Everyone, uh, don't forget, uh, next week we uh, are on uh, Memorial Day hiatus. Great day to catch up on podcasts, of which we are approaching 100. And as you heard in uh, page one today, June 5th, there will be a special edition of the tech, at the Techno Conference in Orlando, live from 12 noon to 1 p.m. Listen in live or join us live 
in Orlando. Amy, thank you for joining us here today on the Nonprofit Coach Special Edition, The Green Show. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone, and we'll be back with you on June 5th. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.